This is Can a Muslim Be an Evolutionist? by Janar Taslaman, performed by Fred Stella. Preface We all witness the dramatic roles that science and religion play in shaping our attitudes towards the universe. During the last couple of centuries, which have been dominated by the increasing authority of science, we've been challenged to establish the proper relations between these two fields. Having dedicated many years of academic life to the field of science, philosophy, religion, interrelations, I can say that no other issue in this field has been more controversial and perplexing than the theory of evolution. The contentiousness of this issue is well known even to the layman, so that to the ears of the general public, science, religion, is synonymous with evolution religion. Here we will address this most controversial subject within the framework of Islam. We will discuss whether the theory of evolution poses a conflict with this faith. Discussions on this matter often involve scrutiny of the reliability of the theory of evolution itself. As a result, two delicate matters get mingled with one another, obscuring the viability, scientific or religious, of this theory. But can a Muslim be an evolutionist, and is the theory of evolution true, are entirely distinct questions. While one may address these two questions in combination or separately, I have found that treating them separately is less prone to confusion. Therefore, the primary focus will be the first question, can a Muslim be an evolutionist? Or, to rephrase the question, does the theory of evolution contradict Islamic beliefs? I will base my arguments on modern scientific research, philosophical considerations, and verses from the Quran. I have attempted to analyze all mainstream objections raised against the theory of evolution from various Muslims. As my thoughts encompass science, philosophy, and theology, I note my firm commitment that these three domains cannot possess divergent truths. My explorations of the theory of evolution go back to my doctoral studies at Marmara University. I've done further research on the theory during my visiting scholarships at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, CMES, of Harvard University and the Faraday Institute of Cambridge University. I have participated in numerous discussions and debates on television, and delivered seminars and lectures in universities. I have published a somewhat extensive version of my dissertation in a book entitled The Theory of Evolution, Philosophy and God. This book was devoted to philosophical and scientific perspectives on the theory of evolution, the development of the theory with regards to the philosophy of science, and arguments for the existence of God. I have noticed that many in my audiences are longing for a frank answer to the question, can a Muslim be an evolutionist? That is why I decided to focus this work on this particular question. In creating this work, I have accumulated many years of experience in the subject. All my colleagues who contributed to my doctoral studies and visiting scholarships at Harvard and Cambridge are to be acknowledged for their contributions. I also deeply benefited from numerous people with whom I discussed related issues and also who have critically read the book that has been turned into this audio presentation prior to its publication. 
I especially thank Kelly James Clark for his careful reading of my book and many insightful comments and suggestions. I am sincerely thankful to them, as well as to my readers and listeners for their interest. For comments, critiques, and suggestions, please visit my webpage, www.canertaslaman.com, where you will also be able to access my other works. Contemporary Perspectives on Science and Religion We have witnessed the ever-increasing authority of science in modern times. Being scientific is now synonymous with being reliable. It might be hard to pinpoint an exact historical timeline of modern science. Nevertheless, the significance of the scientific revolution in the 17th century is unquestioned. In this epoch, Contributions by prominent natural philosophers, which we might now call scientists, Descartes, Galileo, Kepler, and particularly Newton, exponentially broadened our knowledge of and perspective on the universe. Developments in science also influenced the emergence of the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution brought out new technologies, which transformed our lives and triggered profound socio-political transformations. These changes were manifest in every aspect of life, from personal to international relations, from the way battles are fought to new modes of colonization. At the same time, the West saw a decline in the political and economic leverage of the Church and the corresponding decline of religion's authority in personal lives. Between the ninth and thirteenth centuries, science and philosophy were glorified by the civilization of Islam. However, since the seventeenth century, the most influential developments in these fields have predominantly emerged from the Western Christian world. During this period, the Muslim world imported from Western civilization not only scientific and technological developments, but also social ones, including growing populations in cities, and the declining authority of religion. Prominent sociologists of the 19th century, such as Auguste Comte, Karl Marx, and Emile Durkheim, conjectured that the increasing authority of science would steadily suppress the role of religions, eventually making them obsolete. According to Comte, for example, society undergoes three stages, the last of which is the positive stage where science takes religion's place. Nearly two centuries after these conjectures, religions remain steadfast. Notwithstanding, the declining authority of religion in personal lives along with the increase in scientific developments remains a fact. The most notable figures behind the scientific revolution, again including Descartes, Galileo, Kepler, and Newton, were devoutly religious, filled with awe by the reconciliation of scientific findings about the universe with God's creation and religious teachings. Later years, however, witnessed increasing friction between science and religion. The reasons behind these conflicts in the Western Christian world are far-reaching, and such historical sociological discussions are beyond the scope of this work. But for our purposes, it is important to mention this extensive historical background of science-religion interactions. 
In modern times, with the increasing authority of science, the question of how to establish the relations between science and religion has become a vital issue to religious believers. Some thinkers insist on the conflict of science and religion, while others advocate the separation of these two fields. Others defend an integration approach, holding that a positive, harmonious relationship can be established between science and religion. I am inclined toward integration. I embrace the opinion of 12th century philosopher Ibn Rushd that science and religion are companions and that of 21st century theologian scientist John Polkinghorne, who regarded them as cousins. While establishing perspectives on science and religion, it should be clarified which science and which religion are under consideration. Moreover, the terms religion and science can be misleading. Within each religion, for example, there are many different denominations, interpretations, and theological schools of thought. Likewise, in science, for example, Einstein and Bohr had different interpretations of quantum theory, which have shaped modern philosophical approaches to determinism. In order to study science-religion relations in a meaningful and beneficial way, it is imperative to respect and utilize the pluralist nature of both fields. When dealing with the question of evolution and Islam, I will try to encompass all critics of the theory coming from various voices in Islam. Moreover, I will avoid superficial generalizations such as religion includes metaphors, which are occasionally used to sweep all criticisms under the carpet. In short, we will examine various Islamic views on the theory of evolution and evaluate them from scientific, philosophical, and religious perspectives. The Historical Development of the Theory of Evolution and its Fundamental Theses Before delving into our main focus, the theory of evolution from an Islamic perspective, we will take a closer look at the historical development of this theory and its fundamental theses. In its most recent form, the theory of evolution states that all life forms on the earth evolved from one single-celled or few-celled organisms through a couple of billion years of mutations and heredity. Mechanisms such as natural selection, mutation, sexual selection, etc., play crucial roles in the evolutionary processes. The theory itself has evolved through history from Lamarckian and Darwinian interpretations to Neo-Darwinism. The earliest statements on a biological theory of the evolutionary formation of species come from Lamarck. He had been an advocate of the immutable species hypotheses of Linnaeus until he converted to evolutionary thoughts at the age of 56 in the year 1800. In 1809 he published his famous book Philosophie Zoologique, in which he described evolution as a very slow, gradual process, forming new species after many generations. According to Lamarck, the simplest forms of life arose through spontaneous generation, and increasingly complex organisms are formed later through evolution. Human beings represent perfection in life and species become more perfect as they move closer to human form. Humans, the final product of evolution, evolved from apes. 
Lamarck stated the idea of evolution of humans from apes before Darwin. Thus, with an evolutionary theory that relates humans to animals, Lamarck was critically situated against prominent French philosophers, including Descartes, who affirmed a profound gap between humans and animals. The main mechanism of Lamarckian evolution, which Darwin would later call the inheritance of acquired characteristics, is environmental factors, which create new demands on the organism, the consequent changes in their body, and finally, these changes then being inherited by their offspring. When an organ was used more, like a giraffe's neck stretching for leaves, a nervous fluid would flow into it, making it more developed, that is, a longer neck. The continued use of this organ through generations would make it even more developed, and would eventually become a property of the species. Meanwhile, unused organs would shrink over generations. While Darwin never rejected Lamarck's inheritance of acquired characteristics, he also affirmed natural selection as a mechanism of species formation. Darwinian evolution would explain, for example, the evolution of long-necked giraffes from short-necked ancestors as follows. Within each generation, there might be variations in neck lengths. If longer necks were more advantageous in feeding, that trait would be passed on to succeeding generations, whereas short necks would eventually be eliminated. In Lamarckianism, environmental changes directly cause changes in the species. In the Darwinian model, on the other hand, variations come first. Environmental factors manifest themselves in natural selection, with those traits that better permit survival being selected, that is, passed on to future generations with less successful traits being selected out. Following the discovery of genetic inheritance, beginning with the work of Mendel, it became apparent that traits which are passed on to offspring are not affected by how much they are used, favoring the Darwinian approach. Erasmus Darwin, grandfather of Charles Darwin and contemporary of Lamarck, also affirmed the evolutionary formation of species. According to Erasmus, evolution is driven by reactions like pain or pleasure against outside factors, forming new traits which are transmitted to offspring. Significantly, he also mentioned the possibility of a common ancestor of all species. He also mentioned that humans and apes could have evolved from the same species. He did not, however, explain as Charles would how a diversity of species emerged from a common ancestor. Erasmus attributed the evolution of life toward more complicated organisms to God's placement of inherent properties allowing advancement. As a believer in God's creation of life through the laws of nature, he often made references to Holy Scripture in order to support his theories with theological beliefs. Although the theory of evolution is almost always identified with Charles Darwin, Alfred Russell Wallace independently developed the theory of evolution by natural selection at the same time as Darwin. Darwin compiled the details of his observations and theories in his seminal work, The Origin of Species, first published in 1859. He published 19 other books, none of which has become as famous as The Origin of Species. Darwin's works were significantly influenced by 
and based upon his observations during his sea voyage around the world between 1831 to 1836. He would later call his voyage on the Beagle by far the most important event in my life. In his autobiography, Darwin mentions that in putting together his theories on natural selection and struggle for existence, he was inspired by the famous economist Reverend Malthus's book, An Essay on the Principle of Population, that he read in 1838. Ernst Mayer summarizes Malthus's influence on Darwin's formulation of evolution by pointing to five facts and three inferences of the theory. Fact 1. All species have such great potential fertility their population size would increase exponentially. Malthus called this geometrically. If all individuals that were born would reproduce successfully. Fact 2. Except for minor annual fluctuations and occasional major fluctuations, populations normally display stability. Fact 3. Natural resources are limited. In a stable environment, they remain relatively constant. Inference 1. Since more individuals are produced than can be supported by the available resources, but population size remains stable, there must be a fierce struggle for existence among the individuals of a population, resulting in the survival of only a part, often a very small part, of the progeny of each generation. Fact 4. No two individuals are exactly the same. Rather, every population displays enormous variability. Fact 5. Much of this variation is heritable. Inference 2. Survival in the struggle for existence is not random, but depends in part on the hereditary constitution of the surviving individuals. This unequal survival constitutes a process of natural selection. Inference 3. Over the generations, this process of natural selection will lead to a continuing gradual change in populations, that is, to evolution and to the production of new species. Darwin's formulation of the theory of evolution links all living species to a single-celled common ancestor. The principal mechanism of his formulation is natural selection. In modern terms, the theory of evolution, or Darwinism, also referred to as neo-Darwinism, combines the natural selection theory of Darwin with the new scientific results provided by the advent of the science of genetics in the early 20th century. Theodosius Dobzhansky, one of the founders of neo-Darwinism, called the new model the synthetic theory and the biological theory of evolution since it synthesizes many fields including genetics, taxonomy, comparative morphology, paleontology, embryology, ecology, etc. Likewise, terminologies like modern synthesis or evolutionary synthesis are essentially references to a combination of Darwinism with genetics. Modern researchers of evolution include advocates of selectionism, a somewhat reduced role attributed to genetics, and followers of the neutral theory of molecular evolution. Less focus on natural selection. The most common assumption, however, is to explain the evolution of species via natural selection and genetic mutation. 
The most important aspect of neo-Darwinism is its reconciliation of the new findings in genetics with the theory of evolution. Accordingly, a neo-Darwinian would reject the Lamarckian view that traits acquired after birth can be transmitted to offspring. On the other hand, neo-Darwinism exhibits a spectrum of interpretations. Edward O. Wilson, for example, claims that our genetic code also determines our social and cultural behavior, also known as sociobiology. Stephen Jay Gould, on the other hand, calls sociobiology a bad science, and its claims just-so stories. And while neo-Darwinians typically attribute variations in life to the accumulation of micromutations in genes, Niles Eldridge and Stephen Jay Gould oppose this view via their punctuated equilibrium hypothesis. As noted by Dobzhansky, biologists are well aware that many unsolved problems remain in biology in general and evolution in particular, which leads anti-evolutionists to falsely claim that the theory of evolution itself is totally contestable. In short, as with other branches of science, evolutionary biology dynamically progresses through ongoing research and debates, yet its principal tenets of common ancestry and transformation of species are well established. Understanding the relationship between the theory of evolution and belief in God. One common mistake regarding the relationship between the theory of evolution and belief in God is identifying all evolutionists with atheism and its rejectors with theism. Many theist scientists, philosophers, and theologians believe in evolution. Harvard botanist Asa Gray, one of the introducers of the theory of evolution to America, a founding father of the modern theory of evolution. The aforementioned Theodosius Dobzhansky, longtime head of the Human Genome Project Francis Collins, and prominent paleontologist Simon Conway Morris are just a few prominent scientists who have found no conflict between the theory of evolution and their faith in God. Famous philosopher of science and biology Michael Ruse, an atheist, stated that there is nothing inconsistent about believing in God and evolution at the same time. It is a mistake to relate the theory of evolution to atheism and the rejection of this theory to theism. As with agnosticism about God, the claim that God's existence or non-existence is unknowable, so one should stay neutral on the issue, a similar categorization can also be formed for the theory of evolution. Those who believe that since it cannot be proved, one should remain neutral on that issue. As a result, there are nine possible combinations of beliefs in God and in the theory of evolution. They can be divided into three subsets. Group A. 1. Believers in the theory of evolution who are agnostics. 2. Believers in the theory of evolution who are atheists. 3. Believers in the theory of evolution who are theists. Group B. 1. Rejectors of the theory of evolution who are agnostics. 2. Rejectors of the theory of evolution who are atheists. 3. Rejectors of the theory of evolution who are theists. Group C. 1. Agnostics about the theory of evolution 
who are agnostics. 2. Agnostics about the theory of evolution who are atheists. 3. Agnostics about the theory of evolution who are theists. People in any one of these categories do not necessarily share the same philosophies about religion or the theory of evolution. For example, process philosopher Alfred North Whitehead, Christian priest and paleontologist Tehard de Chardin, and Muslim philosopher Muhammad Iqbal are all believers in the theory of evolution and theists. Yet their regards toward God significantly differ from one another. And people in the same category may differ in the depths of their views. It's hard to know where Darwin himself fit into these categories. His writings contain statements indicating that he was a theist, while some letters written by him imply agnosticism. Nonetheless, this reveals that the twofold categorization of people as evolutionist atheist or anti evolutionist theist is simplistic and misleading. Apart from being misleading and incomplete, the twofold categorization also causes unnecessary polarization among people by dictating either believe in God and reject evolution or believe in evolution and reject God. Since atheists lived and died prior to the development of the theory of evolution in the 19th century, atheism is rooted in many reasons unrelated to evolution. Not every evolutionist atheist or evolutionist agnostic is an atheist or agnostic due to their belief in evolution. Darwin's vacillation between theism and agnosticism was due primarily to the problem of evil. In a letter written to Asa Gray, Darwin questioned the death of a person by a lightning strike. And yet, Darwin claims that a creator can be reconciled with evolution by natural selection in The Origin of Species and many other of his writings. So it seems unlikely that evolution by natural selection caused his drift toward agnosticism. It is often difficult to determine how the theory of evolution affects belief in God, and if so, to what degree. For most people, belief or unbelief in God also involves psychological and sociopolitical factors, and even personal experiences. Consider Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. They were materialist atheists before they heard about Darwin's theory of evolution. In preparing for his Ph.D. dissertation, completed in 1841, Marx studied ancient materialists, Democritus and Epicurus, and developed his materialism. Marx and Engels eagerly welcomed Darwin's theory. Indeed, Engels stated that the theory of evolution is the counterpart of Marx's social theories in the world of life. Consequently, Marx and Engels proposed an evolutionary process in the socio-political world cherishing the counterpart of their ideas in biology. However, they did not become materialist atheists due to this theory. A similar situation is observed in Friedrich Nietzsche's ideas. On one hand, he criticized the concept of natural selection and could not reconcile it with his philosophy. Yet on the other, he also made references to the descent of man from animals and stated his belief in evolution. But Nietzsche would have been an atheist even without knowledge of the theory of evolution. Evolutionist atheists, Marx, Engels, and Nietzsche, were not atheists because of evolution. 
However, Richard Dawkins, also an evolutionist atheist, frequently states in his works that atheism is rational only if evolution is true. What are the causal relations between people's faiths and their approach to evolution? We can summarize such causal relations as follows. 1. One's approach to evolution is the cause. One's stance against belief in God is the effect. 2. One's approach to evolution is the effect. One's stance against belief in God is the cause. 3. No causal relationship exists between one's approach to evolution and one's belief in God. These three options again demonstrate the inadequacy of the twofold classification. In fact, a significant percentage of the Muslim population believes that species, including humans, were formed via evolution. In only four Muslim-majority countries does the majority believe in the creation of species in their present forms since the beginning of life. It should be noted that the countries such as Saudi Arabia and Egypt, in which resistance to the theory of evolution is expected, are not included in the survey. The countries where evolution is most widely accepted are Kazakhstan, 79%, Lebanon, 78%, Palestine, 67%, Morocco, 63%, and Uzbekistan, 58%. The strongest rejectors of evolution are in Iraq, 67%, Afghanistan, 62%, Tajikistan, 55%, Indonesia, 55%, and Turkey, 49%. On average, 53% of Muslims believe in evolution. Part of the remaining 47% decided not to make a choice. Since only 46% of American Christians believe in evolution, Acceptance of evolution in Muslim countries is surprisingly high. 45% of American Muslims believe in evolution, below the world average of 53%. The pollers gave two options. Muslims who believe humans and other living things have evolved over time, and Muslims who believe humans and other living things have always existed in present form. Some people decide to choose neither of the two. In almost all of the surveyed countries, the percentage of people who reject Islam as a divine religion is significantly lower compared to acceptors of evolution. As a result, in Muslim countries, a significant portion of the society observes no conflict between the theory of evolution and Islamic beliefs. Despite these unexpected results, the theory of evolution remains the most debated subject by far of science-religion issues among Muslims. The same situation is also true among Christians and Jews. What should a Muslim reject on religious grounds? It would be worthwhile to first answer the following question. What should a Muslim reject on religious grounds? All denominations within Islam unanimously affirm the authority of the Qur'an on religion. Every fundamental tenet of faith must have a basis in the Qur'an. Fundamental tenets such as the existence and almightiness of God, the prophecy of Muhammad, and the life in the hereafter are all based on verses in the Qur'an. 
What a Muslim should reject on religious grounds can be identified in the following way. If a claim contradicts any verse of the Quran, a Muslim should reject that claim. The criterion of contradiction is also important. The verse of the Quran in potential conflict with the claim should be considered in all of its plausible, but not strained or exaggerated, interpretations. And the claim should contradict all such legitimate interpretations. If the claim contradicts a certain interpretation, but not another, we cannot claim that it conflicts with the Quran. Since a non-contradicting interpretation may be correct, it may not be in conflict. The literature of Hadith, which is the record of the sayings and actions of the Prophet Muhammad, contains fabricated statements, Hadith Maudu, about the universe and living things, often falsely attributed to Prophet Muhammad. These fabrications have sneaked into literature as Hadith, particularly as a result of interactions between Muslim societies and Judeo-Christian cultures, and the consequent assimilation of their narrations. In fact, many Hadith scholars regard Israeliyah and Masihiyah as primary sources of Hadith Maudu, which are particularly abundant in issues related to the creation of the universe and life, details which are not given in the Quran. In addition, whether or not Kabhar al-Wahid can be used as a guide has been a controversial subject. We will not go into such debates here. And the majority of scholars agree that no fundamental tenet of Islam can be established on any Kabar al-Wahid. This is also the opinion I advocate. No faith-related issue can stand on suspicion, whereas Kabar al-Wahid is always subject to uncertainty. It is an issue of faith to determine whether or not a claim about the creation of species conflicts with religion. There is no mutawatir hadith in this issue. The few related narrations are kabar al-wahid at best, and no religious stance can be chosen based on them. Therefore, the content of the Quran would suffice to determine whether the theory of evolution conflicts with Islamic beliefs. The critical matter here is the following. Many false claims also do not contradict the Quran. The correctness of a claim and whether or not it contradicts the Quran are entirely different matters. Although this appears to be a simple distinction, I have experienced that many of the logical mistakes and confusion during debates about evolution and Islam stem from lack of understanding of this point. I often start my speech, I am of the opinion that the theory of evolution has no element in conflict with Islamic belief, and answer each one of the objections raised, as I will do so here, based on verses of the Quran. Yet I have many times received responses such as, but the Cambrian explosion falsifies evolution, even though my claim was not about the correctness of the theory of evolution. Rather, I advocate that accepting the theory of evolution is not to oppose Islam and leave the discussions about the truth of evolution to biology and philosophy of biology. For this reason, my claim is totally unrelated to objections raised against evolution itself. Furthermore, when I say 
There is no verse in the Quran in conflict with the theory of evolution. I do not mean the Quran reveals evolution. Yet these two statements are also often mixed up. My claims are about the impossibility of discrediting evolution in the name of Islam. I do not go so far as to claim that a Muslim must believe in evolution as a requirement of his religion. Despite my meticulousness in distinguishing these matters, on numerous occasions I have witnessed related misunderstandings. In my opinion, strong prejudices on such sensitive issues inspire these confusions. It would be beneficial here to exemplify my point that many false claims do not conflict with the Quran. I will give two examples, one historical and the other scientific. While the Quran affirms the existence of Mary, it includes no information on whether or not she had any aunts. Imagine three people claiming that Mary had two, three, and four aunts, respectively. None of these claims conflicts with the Quran, and yet at least two of them are wrong. If a historian were to argue on historical grounds that Mary had two aunts, there would be no Islamic grounds to oppose him or her. Many false claims about historical figures, even those mentioned in the Quran, are not in contradiction with the Quran. The next example is about natural sciences. Imagine two people, one claiming that the moon is bigger than the sun, and the other claiming the opposite. Which of these two claims conflicts with Islamic faith? Neither of them, because the Quran does not contain information on the sizes of the sun and the moon. Hence, although the claim that the moon is larger than the sun has been scientifically discredited, it doesn't contradict Islam. I will endeavor here to show that the situation is the same in discussions of the theory of evolution. No matter how many ants are attributed to Mary, one could say she had thousands of ants, for that matter, and no matter what comparison is made between the masses of the sun and the moon, contradiction with the Quran is out of the question. Likewise, no claim on the emergence of life forms and humans can contradict Islam. Even though the Quran clearly mentions that all species of life, including humans, are created by God, it does not reveal how this was carried out. As a consequence, my claim that a Muslim can be an evolutionist cannot be converted into a Muslim must be an evolutionist. Alternately, my claim that evolution is compatible with the Quran cannot be converted into the Quran implies evolution. The Quran doesn't imply evolution because it teaches nothing about how God created species, which is precisely why the Quran is compatible with evolution. Some religious people say that since atheists exploit the theory of evolution against faith, evolution should be rejected in defense of the faith. We should make the following point clear. If Muslims, in the name of Islam, had not erroneously insisted that Islam opposed evolution, atheists would not have had the opportunity to attack Islam on the basis of evolution. Those who wrongly state that acceptance of God requires rejection of evolution are essentially responsible for paving the way for such atheistic objection. Muslims simply need not disagree with atheists on their beliefs in the structure of elements in the periodic table, the composition of magma, and the roundness of the earth. 
These phenomena are all creations of God. He is the creator of life as well as the elements, the magma, and the earth. It is anti-Islamic to proclaim on these phenomena by first determining what atheists believe and choosing the opposite. Muslims should shape their opinions according to the Quran, not according to their opponents. And a Muslim should be aiming for the truth first and foremost, not first and foremost opposing atheists. And just as there is no religious requirement to reject the scientific findings about these phenomena, the same is also true for evolution. I observe double injustice on this subject. By claiming that evolution implies atheism, atheists not only make a false claim, they exploit the theory in favor of their philosophies, thereby harming the objective evaluation of scientific approaches. The theory of evolution is about the field of biology and describes the formation of living species. Whether or not it is also a product of a conscious design does not fall within the domain of science. Secondly, claims that a Muslim must reject the theory of evolution likewise hinders the objective evaluation of this theory by Muslims, creating unnecessary friction between science and religion. Understanding the falsity of rejecting evolution on Islamic grounds clears up misconceptions and ceases these injustices. God of the Gaps or God of the Creation The most prominent reason behind objections to the theory of evolution on religious grounds is the claim that the theory excludes belief in God. Clarifying this conclusion is of primary importance in judging whether or not a Muslim can believe in evolution. The same arguments also hold for Christians and Jews. Since belief in God is the most fundamental element common in all monotheistic religions, these faiths naturally reject any belief that contradicts belief in God. Does the theory of evolution really require the rejection of belief in God? The short answer to this question is no. Now let's turn to the long answer. Most misconceptions in this regard are linked with failure to understand processive creation. We will discuss this issue in the following chapter. Another common root of such misconceptions is the notion of God of the Gaps. God of the Gaps types of arguments essentially claim that the main evidence for the existence of God is the unknowns about the universe and of life. It is God who fills these gaps. Consequently, if no gap is left, there would no longer remain the need for the existence of God. Inevitably, such perspectives lead to the perception that all scientific developments are threats to religion. We have historically heard that we do not know how the stars produce light, so God produces starlight. And we don't know how the planets move, so God moves the planets, etc. But as science has progressed, explaining the light of the stars in terms of nuclear forces and the motion of planets in terms of inertia, God has gotten squeezed out of the gap of ignorance. However, most theist philosophers and theologians of our time reject God of the Gaps arguments for the existence of God. Instead, they glorify increasing scientific knowledge about life and the universe as a means of comprehending the might of God. They do not seek refuge in ignorance. For this reason, 
Those who claim that increasing knowledge weakens the need for God exhibit a common flaw known in the literature of logic as strawman fallacy. Committers of strawman fallacy ignore the main arguments of the opposing opinion. Instead, they present counter-arguments against a bad or exaggerated example of their rivals, as if those examples were positions taken by their opponent. Committers of strawman fallacy include renowned atheist and evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. Theism in general, and Islam in particular, glorifies not ignorance, but knowledge in cosmology and biology. God is not a god of the gaps. He is rather God of the creation. We witness His might and art not through ignorance gaps, but through knowledge of nature. The progressive knowledge that emerges about life and the universe are means to comprehend the might and art of God. Modern findings in the field of biology are no exceptions. They should be regarded as subjects of desire to better comprehend God. I often witness the following inconsistency in those who regard the theory of evolution, which describes the emergence of living species, as a threat to the existence of God. These same people correctly find no threat in the Big Bang theory that describes the evolutionary formation of the universe through 13.8 billion years, nor in the evolution of our Earth during the past 4.5 billion years. However, if the modern scientific findings about the evolution of the Earth and the universe do not contradict the existence of God, why would similar findings about the evolution of life forms isn't God the creator of the universe, of the earth, and even of life? Theories about the formation and evolution of life, like theories about the formation and evolution of the earth and the universe, simply do not contradict the faith in God advocated by Islam. Muslims, then, should not seek out gaps, that is, unexplained phenomena in the universe and life. For example, the accelerating expansion of the universe is attributed to dark energy, and yet this dark energy is still poorly understood. We should resist the urge to blithely insert God into this explanatory gap. There are many things that science cannot explain. This should not incite a religious desire to find unanswered scientific questions. Muslims should take their ignorance of natural phenomena as inspiration to learn scientifically of the causes of that phenomena and glorify God for His great work. The Quran never glorifies ignorance, pious or not, over knowledge. To the contrary, the Quran enthusiastically and unequivocally encourages attaining knowledge. For example, this verse invites us to attain deeper knowledge about the beginning of creation. Chapter 29, verse 20 Say, Go all over the earth and behold how he has created in the first instance. And thus, too, will God bring into being your second life. For verily, God has the power to will anything. This verse implies that a Muslim should try to gain knowledge even about the origin and evolution of the universe and life. Seeking for gaps in our knowledge, or worse, glorifying these gaps, is not compatible with Quranic perspective. There is nothing at all Islamic in seeking refuge in gaps, using these gaps to develop Islamic arguments, or 
for taking theories that inform us about natural processes as threats to the existence of God. God is not God of the gaps, but God of creation. There is no reason to reject any theory, regardless of its verity, about the history of the universe and life as contradictory to the existence of God. He says, Be, and it is. Kun fa yokun, processive or instantaneous creation. Suppose a painter says, I made this painting. If we were to hear such an expression, we would understand what he means. Knowing that he made the painting, we also know that the painting came into existence through certain processes. The painter bought a canvas and dyes, mixed the dyes, stuck the brushes in the dyes, and then stroked them on the canvas, painting one part of the painting first and then another, etc. His expression, I made this painting, does not contradict the fact that the painting was also made through these processes. All of those processes are integral parts of the painter's creation, undertaken with the purpose of making the painting. Likewise, when God says, I created the heavens, or I created living beings, or I created humans, a Muslim should not assume that these expressions imply immediate, processless creations, or instantaneous comings into existence. God's claim to make things does not preclude God's use of processes. Another mistake to be corrected in this regard is the actual meaning of random as commonly used by biologists. When a biologist says that mutations in living organisms happen randomly, they mean there is no known law of biology that enforces these mutations to happen in accordance with the actual needs of the organisms. The word random hence stresses the distinction between the neo-Darwinist paradigm and the Lamarckian approach of the past, which assumed that changes in organisms took place according to the needs and struggles of the species. In other words, the term random is about the mechanisms of alterations in species and the corresponding modifications in the genetic code, and has no reference to any atheistic claim. A person who accepts the mechanism of modifications in species as random in this sense can also regard the overall processes behind the emergence and alteration of species as a realization of God's plan. There is no contradiction between these two perspectives. The key concept here is process. According to Islam, everything that we observe around ourselves is a product of God's creation, and all the things we observe are linked to certain processes. When a Muslim finishes his meal, he says, Alhamdulillah, to thank God for providing the food. However, prior to becoming a meal, the potatoes on the dish went through several processes. The potatoes grew in the field, were picked by a farmer, sold to a grocery, bought by a man, and cooked by his wife. Since all such processes happen thanks to God's creation of atoms, the earth, life, plants, and time, 
A Muslim never finds creation through processes contradictory with the existence of God and consistently states, Alhamdulillah, when eating his potato. When a Muslim drinks milk with his meal, he might remember chapter 16, verse 66 from the Quran. And behold, in the cattle there is indeed a lesson for you. We give you to drink of that which is secreted from within their bellies, between that which is to be eliminated from the animal's body and lifeblood, milk pure and pleasant to those who drink it. When a Muslim drinks milk and thanks God, he or she does not reject the facts that the cow ate grass. The grass went through many processes in the cow's body, including many not described in the Quran, and the milk came to the table via the work of numerous other people. No process in the preparation of the milk that is not mentioned in this verse can be regarded as contradicting the expression, We give you to drink. All of the phenomena that take place on the earth do so thanks to the formation of pertinent elements. The formation of elements, on the other hand, depends on the beginning of the Big Bang, the emergence of mass via the Higgs particle, the formation of galaxies and stars, and on many other finely tuned processes. In other words, if each reference to God's sending down rain, making the wind blow, or providing the milk were to require mention of all the processes involved, it would be necessary to list countless events starting from the Big Bang. Such a description would use up a space much larger than the actual volume of the Quran. Similar arguments hold for an artist who says, I have made this painting. Had he attempted to describe all of the details of all of the processes behind the creation of the painting, he'd have to list everything from the Big Bang to the formation of elements in stars. As a result, when a certain phenomenon is being described, first, it is practically impossible to list all of the processes behind it, and second, we are all aware of what is actually meant even though the literal meaning of the words do not contain every single detail. God, the sole master of all events, uses countless, mostly unstated and even unknown processes to bring events about. We should expect then, in his descriptions of creation in the Quran, no reference to the detailed processes behind them. Those who fail to grasp the nature and importance of process of creation claim that descriptions in the Quran about God's creation, such as, He says, Be, and it is, Kun fa yakun, refer to processless creation of life and humans. Even a superficial inspection of the verses where the statement, He says, Be, and it is, occurs, would reveal the falsity of such claims. When God orders something to be, He wills it to happen, and it happens. This, however, does not imply instantaneous, non-processive causation. It implies that the order or will of God is necessary and sufficient for something to happen. Some interpreters of the Quran translate the Arabic article fa as immediately, and interpret kun fa yokun as he says be, and it immediately is. However, other occurrences of the article, fa, in the Quran, 
refer to situations that require translation as afterwards, hereupon, implying process. In the Quran, the statement, He says be and it is, is used in the narration of the creation of Jesus. The statement in this context does not refer to non-processive creation. Chapter 3, verse 47 Said she, O my sustainer, how can I have a son when no man has ever touched me? It is answered, Thus it is. God creates what He wills. When He wills a thing to be, He but says unto it, Be, and it is. The creation of Jesus happened by God's order to be, and yet, as described in the Quran, His mother still carried Him in her womb until due time. Had the statement, He says be and it is, been instantaneous, non-processive creation, Jesus must have descended upon the earth as an adult ready to deliver His message. Interestingly, it is commonly observed that when the statement, He says be and it is, is used for the creation of the universe or Jesus, many believers do not presume instantaneous or non-processive creation. Yet they thoughtlessly claim that the exact same expression for the creation of mankind implies instantaneousness. Hence, there is no reason to interpret the creation of mankind and Adam with God's order of be as instantaneous. The mistaken interpretation of fa as immediately in translations of the Quran should be corrected. The verses that contain this expression state the unconditional happening of God's will manifested in His order be. But such happenings are or can be processive. Indeed, in other verses of the Quran, God creates the heavens and earth in six stages. The notion of six stages, or yom, will be discussed later. Yet the creation of the heavens and the earth happen with God's order B. Chapter 36, verses 81 and 82. Is then he who has created the heavens and the earth not able to create the like of those? Yea, indeed, for he alone is the all-knowing creator. 82. When he wills a thing to be, he but says unto it, Be, and it is. There is, then, no reason to interpret B as instantaneous creation. Although the universe is 13.8 billion years old, it is still a product of His order. B. Those who object to the theory of evolution because it would require God creating through processes ignore both the Quran's clear teaching about creation and God's creation that we witness around us. In other words, by using such arguments to oppose the theory of evolution, such objectors are de facto opposing Islam by opposing God's word and world. We can acquire the knowledge that we need to appreciate the might and art of God thanks to the universe functioning via processive creation. The process of creation of God is manifest in the causal occurrence of chains of events in the universe. Indeed, such causality is a prerequisite for acquiring scientific knowledge. Thanks to accumulated scientific knowledge, we learn about the internal structure of the stars, the atmosphere around the earth, the way bees produce honey, and the function of our coronary arteries and heart. 
As a result, a Muslim should see no problem with process of creation. To the contrary, without appreciation of process of creation, it is impossible to properly comprehend the actions of God. Furthermore, one of the fundamental tenets of Islam is that life is a trial. A trial makes sense only in a world where we can predict the outcomes of our actions. We can do this only in a universe that functions via ordered processes. Consider the following example. If someone pushes a person off a cliff, the pusher has committed a bad action. This is because the ordered processes that function on the earth lead us to understand that falling off a cliff is fatal. If we were a judge in a court, we would find the pusher guilty. Imagine for a second a world where there are no ordered processes. In this fictitious world, the person who pushes the other would not be responsible for his behavior since he would not be able to predict its outcome. In short, just as we can appreciate the might and art of God thanks to our existence in a world functioning via processes dictated by the laws of nature, our responsibility for our deeds, and hence the world being an arena of trial, is also possible thanks to the same processes. Holding humans morally accountable assumes the notion of process of creation. Consider a typical strained argument to show that the theory of evolution contradicts Islamic beliefs. One such argument, based on angels, is stated as, were the angels also created through evolution? Such questions imply that if the non-evolutionary creation of angels, which are supernatural, is proven, this would constitute evidence against evolution. First of all, since the theory of evolution is a biological explanation that explains the emergence of species on the earth, supernatural beings are by their nature excluded. As a result, the creation of angels is irrelevant to the theory of evolution. Moreover, the Quran does not claim a similar creation of humans and angels. If angels and humans were alike in all respects to humans, we would absurdly expect angels to come into existence via the intercourse of a mother and father, various stages in the wombs of the mother, being born as a baby, etc. If one claims a scientific theory about the creation of humans and other living things is true only if the angels have also gone through the same creationary processes, why does he or she not think that angels go through the same processes as humans? We know next to nothing about the creation of angels, just that they were created by God. We don't know if this creation was processive or instantaneous, or, if processive, what stages it involved. As a result, it is nonsense to raise objections against evolution based on such arguments. The Ages of the Universe and the Earth Creation in Six Stages, or Days Some of the earliest objections to the theory of evolution involved opinions about the ages of the universe and the earth. Calculations based on sacred texts performed by Irish Bishop James Usher, 1581-1656, were widely accepted, especially in England. Most Protestants respected Usher's calculation 
and believed that the earth was created in the year 4004 B.C. Cambridge University Vice Provost Lightfoot pushed the calculations even further and determined that the creation happened on the 23rd of September at 9 a.m. The dates calculated by Usher were so respected that they were printed as footnotes in the King James Version of the Bible. These established beliefs yielded strong opposition to the idea of evolution, which implied a much older earth. No specific date of creation is actually mentioned in the Old Testament. As a result, most Christian theologians oppose such dating. Nonetheless, even today there are firm believers in young earth creationism, which claims that the creation of the earth happened no earlier than 10,000 years ago. In the U.S., for example, polls indicate that these believers occupy a significant percentage of society. For this reason, many atheists draw the line between creationists and evolutionists along the belief in a young or old earth. On the other side, the majority of believers see no religious problem with the universe being 13.8 billion years old and earth being 4.5 billion years old. Young Earth creationism is not a mainstream religious opinion, and I believe that these groups do not deserve too much attention. However, some evolutionist atheists intentionally attempt to present Young Earth creationism as the mainstream monotheistic religion's opinion. Such an assumption is totally wrong. Those groups have no authority to represent all monotheistic beliefs, most of which accept ages of billions of years for the universe and the earth. The theory of evolution originated and developed in the Christian world. Philosophical and theological discussions about the theory originated in the same culture. For this reason, discussions about science-religion relationships, particularly on the theory of evolution, are often associated with Christian theology, and consequently with the age of the earth. Here, however, our focus is Islam, and for our considerations, it would be appropriate to ask the following question. Can a Muslim accept the modern scientific results that the universe is 13.8 billion years old and the earth is 4.5 billion years old? Based on the methodology I established early on, I comfortably manifest that there isn't the slightest problem in accepting these ages. There is no claim, not even an implication, about the age of the universe in the Quran, and thus believing in a date indicated by scientific studies cannot contradict Islamic beliefs. This discussion also recalls verses in the Quran about the creation of the universe and the earth in six stages, or days. One may wonder whether these verses contradict the ages of billions of years of the universe and the earth. In the Quran, the Arabic word used to describe six stages, or days, is yawm, and it has the same etymological roots as the Hebrew word yawm. The expression six stages, or days, is also used in the Old Testament. Many Judeo-Christian theologians, as well as Charles Darwin himself, interpreted creation in six stages, or days, as occurrences over long periods of time. Likewise, Muslim theologians also state that besides meaning a 24-hour day, the word yawm 
can also mean stage or period of time. In fact, such interpretations have been mentioned in Islamic literature centuries before the outcome of modern scientific results about the past of the universe. More importantly, in the Quran itself there are occurrences of the word yawm referring to 50,000 years and 1,000 years, consistent with the stage interpretation. These verses are chapter 32, verse 5. He governs all that exists, from the celestial space to the earth, and in the end all shall ascend unto him on a day the length whereof will be like a thousand years of your reckoning. Chapter 70, verse 4. All the angels and all the inspiration ascend unto him, in a day the length whereof is like fifty thousand years. Muslim societies were influenced neither by Usher's chronology nor by the calendars based on Jewish stories of early humans. According to such calendars, we are now around year 5700. Therefore, geological and paleontological findings indicating billions of years' age for the earth, did not ignite any religion-science clashes in the Islamic world, where old earth creationism, young earth creationism, or similar debates never occurred. Was the flood of Noah local or global? When we compare the findings of modern geology with the sacred texts, what should we make of the flood of Noah as described in the scriptures? According to Ernst Mayer, a prominent neo-Darwinist, Christian ideas about geology and about all animals being spread on the earth from Noah's Ark encouraged the strengthening and spreading of the theory of evolution as an opponent of such untenable claims. Jews, Christians, and Muslims share the belief that Noah was a prophet sent by God to his community. Those who rejected him were destroyed by a flood, but the believers were spared on the ark constructed by Noah. While this story is shared in all three faiths, theologians have disputed whether the flood was globally or only locally realized. At the beginning of the 18th century, Lister, 1639-1712, claimed that fossils were nothing but unique, strange-looking rocks, having nothing to do with living beings. Much earlier than him, Bernard Palissy, 1510-1589, regarded fossils as remnants of extinct animals. Since Lister's fallacious theory found many supporters even into the 18th century, we can appreciate how young a field paleontology is. Even though Herodotus, Strabo, Plutarch, and especially Xenophanes had discussed fossils thousands of years ago, it was only starting in the 17th century and then into the 18th and 19th centuries that the study of fossils attained a scientific character. Today, from our study of fossils, we understand that numerous multi-celled organisms have continually existed on the earth for hundreds of millions of years. Moreover, there is no period of cessation of life on the continents of America and Africa. As a result, it would be problematic to assume that the flood of Noah interfered with life around the world. Some theologians maintain that the flood was global and that Noah's ark saved all species of animals. On the other side, 
Some geologists, including Charles Lyell, claimed that the flood was effective over all the Earth, but did not cause major global damage. This latter approach is referred to as the tranquil flood theory. Another interpretation, the local flood theory, holds that at Noah's time, all people on the earth were living in the same region, and the flood affected only that particular region. Defenders of the local flood hold that the words in the sacred texts, such as entire, each, etc., do not imply geographically global, but instead imply broad extent and profoundness. They offer the following passage from Genesis as an example. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. They also note that it is nonsense to believe that kangaroos hopped to the Middle East from Australia to embark on Noah's Ark, and that Genesis does not refer to the miraculous transfer of animals. Statements in the same passage about the flood covering the entire earth and reaching over mountaintops are described from the point of view of Noah and are confined to the region where he lived. For our discussion, we will assess whether it is mandatory for Muslims to believe in the globality of the flood of Noah. The Quran does not contain many details about the flood described in the Old Testament, and in the Quran's description, there is no conflict with the present scientific findings. Many verses in the Quran describe natural disasters sent as punishment over ancient infidel societies. Noah's people were one of them. The following verses from the Quran shed more light on this matter. Chapter 25, verses 37 and 38. And the people of Noah, when they denied the messengers, we drowned them and made them a symbol for mankind. We have prepared for the wrongdoers a painful punishment. And remember how we punished the tribes of Ad and Thamud and the people of Aras and many generations of sinners in between. Centuries prior to the emergence of paleontology and its findings, many Muslim scholars stated that the flood of Noah was local because all who rejected Noah were living in his town, which would not require punishment of the entire earth. From the Quran, we learn that the punishments given to ancient societies were directed only at the guilty ones. It would be against the paradigm of the Quran to imagine the punishment of innocent people and animals in irrelevant parts of the earth. Turkish Quranic exegesis scholar El Malullah Hamdi Yazir explains his interpretation as follows. From this we understand that Noah was not sent to the entire humanity, but only to his community. How many different societies were on the earth at that time, the places where they lived, and the total population of the earth? These are known only to God. The expanse of the flood of Noah means that it affected his entire community. There is no reason to interpret it as effective all over the world. Many Muslim scholars understand the flood to be local. And furthermore, they also believe that other societies may have lived at the same epoch in other places. Even if one claims that all humanity consisted of the people of Noah, this would not alter our conclusion. Since that society would have lived in a confined region of the earth, the flood would still have been local. 
There is hence no need for a Muslim to believe in a global flood. If the flood were local, the animals Noah would have taken on the ark were for future needs of the believers spared from the flood. There is no need to believe that the ark provided refuge for hundreds of thousands of species of animals. As pointed out by El Melilla Hamdi Yazir, when we consider the logic behind the punishments given to ancient societies described in the Quran, it is more consistent to believe that the flood was local. Indeed, geological studies show that various parts of the earth suffered from severe floods throughout history. Creation of Man from Clay When I ask people, why do you think that a Muslim should reject the theory of evolution, I often notice them stagger. When they are able to summon an answer, the most common response concerns the creation of man from clay, as revealed in the Quran. It is widely believed that creation from clay is incompatible with the idea of evolution. One verse of the Quran on that issue is as follows. Chapter 6, verse 2. He it is who has created you out of clay, and then has decreed a term for you, a term known only to him, and yet you doubt. Different verses of the Quran describe the creation of man from water, ma, from dust, turab, as well as from a certain essence, sulala, of clay, teen, that is a mixture of water and dust. Man is not formed by a random state of clay, but from a certain composition of a number of elements present in the clay. For example, the human body contains a few grams of zinc, and its deficiency causes serious health problems. In Surah Yasin, the creation of man is from a drop, nutfa, and can be interpreted as sperm or zygote, and in Surah Alak, from a hanging, which is the meaning of alak. It also means clinging, and recalls the embryo's attachment to the womb in the early stages of pregnancy. While different stages of creation are individually described in different chapters of the Quran, confusion is avoided by putting them in order in Surah al-Muminun, verse 12. Now indeed, we create man out of the essence of clay, and then we cause him to remain as a drop in the womb's firm keeping. Then we developed the drop into a hanging, then developed the hanging into a chewed lump of flesh, then created the chewed lump of flesh, mudga, into bones, then covered the bones with flesh, lam. In order to properly understand the Quranic viewpoint on a given topic, one must thoroughly investigate all of the related verses. Therefore, discussion of a certain stage of the creation of man in one chapter of the Quran does not mean that no other stage has taken place, just as no one would think that there is no other stage in between creation from a drop, nutfa. There is no reason to think that creation from clay precludes any other process. Even though some of the subjects described in the Qur'an are related to scientific domains, the Qur'an itself is not a book of science. It does not provide all the details about the creation of the first man, 
or about the development of the fetus inside the womb. Indeed, a detailed description of embryonic development itself would take a volume much larger than that of the Quran. Careful reading of the Quran reveals that while the creation of Adam, explicitly named from dust, is mentioned only once, Surah Ali Imran, verse 59, many other verses mention the creation of all man from dust and water, hence clay. For example, Surah Al-Hajj, verse 5, We have created you out of dust. Surah Al-Muminun, verse 12, Now indeed we create man out of the essence of clay. Surah Ar-Rum, verse 20, he creates you out of dust. All these reveal that all humans are created from clay. In order to properly interpret these verses, instead of limiting the creation from clay to the first man, it would be more appropriate to understand how all humans are created. Those who limit the creation from clay to the first man resort to allegorical meanings of the verses, without understanding their direct meanings. Those verses describe the creation not only of the first man, but also of the entirety of humanity. A more appropriate approach would be to interpret such verses as pointing out raw materials from which all humans are created. Hence, I emphasize again that when the direct and open meanings of the verses of the Quran are accepted instead of allegorical ones, no conflict arises with the theory of evolution. Understanding creation of all humans from clay is straightforward, and this creation is repeated every day in front of us. We are often misled by searching for far-out interpretations instead of preferring the simplest and clearest explanation that stands before us. Our food comes from either animals or from plants. When a seed is planted in the soil, it germinates and develops into a full plant by mixing together water and soil clay, mud. When animals eat these plants, they digest and regenerate them into their body parts. For example, a corn seed is thrown into the soil. The seed takes water and minerals from the soil and becomes a mature plant. The corn is then fed to a chicken that modifies the corn and distributes its constituents over its body. As a result, both plants and animals are formed via modifications of raw materials present in the mud. When we eat them, their body parts become ours. In our bodies, millions of cells die and millions of new ones are created every minute. These new cells become part of the being that we call I. Raw materials of these cells are the plants and animals that we eat, which are in essence a processed version of mud. That means we ourselves are formed by the processing of clay. The body of every single human being is formed at every moment from body parts of plants and animals. The corn or chicken that we eat progressively become parts of us. In short, creation from clay is not a completed process. It continues unceasingly. We constantly witness it and it is not at all about the first man only. In fact, there is no element which exists in our bodies, but not in soil. All elements in our bodies, carbon, iron, 
oxygen, calcium, zinc, etc., are present in the soil. The verses we discussed here can be understood so easily and without the slightest allegorical or strained interpretation. Such an understanding is also more coherent with the fact that those verses describe the creation of all humans from clay. This is a sufficient response to those who think that evolution should be opposed because the Quran affirms creation from clay. The Quran also describes the creation from clay as an initial stage, and this beginning, Bada, implies the occurrence of other stages. Chapter 32, verse 7 Makes most excellent everything that he creates. Thus he begins the creation of man out of clay. When someone produces something out of a certain material, he could describe the process by making reference to the material. A sculptor would say, I made the statue from marble. A carpenter would say, I made the table from wood. A cook would say, I made kebabs from meat. When we hear such commonly used language, we do not assume that the statue has not gone through shaping and polishing procedures, the table has not gone through cutting and nailing, and the food has not gone through the slaughtering of the animal, preparing the meat, marinating it, and cooking it. Why then assume that I created men from clay implies a lack of other processes? This statement does not imply a processless occurrence. Furthermore, all processes occur via the matter and time created by God. If we do not see any problem with the sculptor, carpenter, and cook processing the raw materials into products, we should see no problem with God not mentioning all of the intermediary processes involved in His creation. The statement, creation from clay, should not be understood as lacking any process between the clay and the human being but as a shorthand specification of the raw materials of every human being. In the Quran, Surah Hud, verse 61, Prophet Salah tells his people, He brought you into being out of the earth. Yet nobody takes this verse to mean that people emerge from the earth without the involvement of parents or biological processes. If creation from something implies lack of processes between the material and the end product, then should we understand this verse as meaning the immediate creation of the people from earth, which is ludicrous? Scientific expressions describe processes within the framework of causality and the laws of nature. We should keep in mind, however, that such a description does not necessarily exclude intentionality. Consider, for example, a host serving tea to his guests. A scientific description of the corresponding events could go as follows. Water boils in the teapot via thermal conductivity of the metal and the transfer of heat to water molecules. When the tea is poured into the cup, the liquid takes the shape of the container and stays in it via the laws of physics and chemistry. Such scientific descriptions of the preparation and serving of tea does not preclude the fact that the host performs those actions with the intention of pleasing his guests. In a similar way, 
no scientific description of the biological, physical, and chemical processes occurring from clay to animals or humans can contradict Islamic belief that God governs all these processes with the intention of creating animals and humans. Biology is the branch of science that describes the natural processes of life. Whether these processes are parts of conscious, supernatural planning does not fall within the domain of biology. Biological descriptions of life, then, can be neither theistic nor atheistic. Alleged theistic or atheistic consequences of physical and biological results are, then, philosophical interpretations. Such evaluations are the subject of philosophy in general and of philosophy of religion, about the arguments for the existence of God, in particular. Theologically speaking, no biological description, correct or not, of the formation of life out of lifeless raw materials, such as clay, can contradict creation as taught by Islam. Human Dignity, Common Ancestry with Animals, and the Monkey Matter Another common reason behind the rejection of the theory of evolution from Muslim societies is the theory's claim of common ancestry between humans and animals, particularly with the apes. However, when asked to specify which verses of the Qur'an speak against common ancestry with primates, critics seldom offer much of an answer. However, some claim that common descent with apish animals would be against human dignity. In this chapter, I will consider objections related to human dignity. The establishment of an ancestral relationship between humans and apish animals does not jeopardize human dignity. In the Quran, Satan is censured for his arrogance when he claimed his origins superior to that of man, thereby rising against God. From such narrations about Satan, we understand that ancestral arrogance is condemned in the Quran. Therefore, rooting human dignity in ancestry lacks Quranic foundation. As with other monotheistic scriptures, the Quran shows how idolaters and wrongdoers are censured. Consider Pharaoh and Abu Lahab. As humans, we share ancestors with them. Yet sharing ancestors with such wicked people is no argument against human dignity. If the existence of such wicked people among our species does not diminish our dignity, why would a shared ancestry with animal species? Indeed, the fiercest enemies of the Prophet Muhammad, Abu Lahab and Abu Jahil, were his relatives. If being related to a bad person affected dignity, we would be forced to believe that the Prophet Muhammad thereby lacked dignity. No Muslim would accept such a claim. Ancestry has nothing to do with dignity. Is the claim of common ancestry of humans with cats, or fish, or apes worse than the claim of shared ancestry with Pharaoh or Abu Lahab? And while Pharaoh or Abu Lahab are censured in the Quran, cats, fish, and apes are not. Indeed, the Quran states that some oppressors are in a worse state than animals. Chapter 25, verse 44. Nay, they are but like cattle. Nay, they are even less conscious of the right way. 
I sometimes hear arguments against the theory of evolution related to this issue, which I call the charm of the grandpa argument. It is typically expressed as follows. My grandfather is not an ape, but yours is. The user of this argument implies that he and his grandfather are charming, yet his opponent is not charming at all, and is therefore likely to have descended from apes. Such rhetoric might be entertaining, but it is scientifically misguided and theologically misinformed. Theologically, why should one feel uncomfortable about sharing common ancestry with animals which are not scorned in the Quran? yet does not feel any discomfort about being a member of a species, humans, some of whom are declared by the Quran as worse than animals. Indeed, a theory that unites all living beings in a common root is both philosophically and theologically appealing. Many Muslim philosophers, including Ibn Miskawaya, died 1030, classified humans and apes on the adjacent rung of the ladder of life, hundreds of years prior to the emergence of the theory of evolution. Such a hierarchical classification of the great chain of being should not be confused with the idea of descent from apes. Some writers interpreted the great chain of being mentioned by many Muslim philosophers as prior to the theory of evolution. The concept of the great chain of being is quite different than evolution. Every rung of the hierarchical ladder is occupied, and there is no room for evolution. From this regard, this theory contradicts evolution. On the other hand, by assuming transition between ladders, it recalls evolutionary thoughts. The comments of philosopher-biologist Jahiz, died 1869, differ from others on this issue in that he made reference to the transformation of species and natural selection. Even though it would be far-fetched to claim that he invented the idea of evolution, his biological writings in seven volumes deserve a significant place in the history of biology. If there is an evolutionary relationship between humans and other species, it is natural to consider the first candidates among apes as our nearest neighbors on the chain. However, According to the theory of evolution, we did not descend from apes. Apes and hominoids split off from a common ancestor. Neither ancestry from clay nor ancestry from apes count against human dignity. Are animals worse than clay? Our bodies host trillions of bacteria, much more numerous than our cells. Our bodies are like planets of bacteria. These creatures are part of our bodies, just like our organs. Yet being bacterial hosts does not diminish our dignity. Being a planet of bacteria, in other words, hosting trillions of living things much inferior to multi-celled animals, and even being vitally dependent on these creatures, does not hurt our feelings. Why should our ancestral proximity to apes? Our bodies are continuously refurbished by the nutrients we consume. I, then, come from the digested and reconstructed molecules of potato, rice, chicken, and lamb that I eat. If the conversion of potatoes, rice, chicken, and lamb into our body parts does not diminish our dignity, claims about the first humans being converted forms of primates shouldn't diminish our dignity either. 
The compatibility of evolution with our dignity and moral values does not imply that evolution is Islamically correct or that it should be accepted. The latter requires an assessment of evidence of biology, geology, paleontology, etc. Nevertheless, there is no Quranic basis to rejecting evolution from an Islamic perspective on human dignity. Some question the compatibility of evolution with Islam on the basis of the creation of humans in the best confirmation. Ahsani Taqween Chapter 95, Verses 4 and 5 Verily, we create man in the best confirmation, and thereafter we reduce him to the lowest of the low, since the best confirmation concerns the state of humanity, attaining to the state of humanity via evolution would not conflict with this verse. Before gaining the shape of a human, the best confirmation, we all went through the embryonic stages starting from sperm, egg, and zygote. Yet none of these stages opposes creation in the best confirmation. Moreover, sperm cells and zygotes are much less similar to a human than apes. The statement, the best confirmation, refers to the final state of the human being, not its prior stages. In addition, when taken together, the two previous verses are more about the moral status of humans than their bodily shape. After all, a human being, originally created in the best confirmation, can convert into the lowest of the low, asphala safilin. Yet idolatry and oppression, making us the lowest of the low, do not alter one's physical appearance. Since the statement, the lowest of the low, asphala safilin, does not refer to physical deterioration, the best confirmation, asani taqweem, doesn't refer to physical shape. Rather, it refers to humanity's moral character. In conclusion, Arguments based on human dignity and creation in the best confirmation do not constitute Islamic evidence against the theory of evolution.